Well, thank you for the opportunity to Austin and to the shepherds here from Crossroads. Um, As Jeremy and Taylor mentioned, we are preparing our family to leave for the Philippines in just a number of months. So we do appreciate all of your prayers very, very much. Today, as we open up God's Word, please take your Bible to, turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. We're going to look at the story of the Tower of Babel this morning. Let's read it together, verses 1 through 9. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city, the tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building that city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is God's word. Let's pray before we continue. Father, we come to you and to your word, and we ask for a heart that is humble and ready to learn and to worship you this morning. We acknowledge that we are full of sin, and we are in need of your help, especially this morning. We pray that you will be glorified and that we be challenged and edified. In Jesus' name, amen. Singaporeans have made a name for themselves. The Marina Bay Sands Hotel. Have you seen it? Have you heard of it? If you haven't, I give you a liberty to take your phone and to do a quick Google search for the next 60 seconds while I continue to describe it. The Marina Bay Sands Hotel in Singapore is one of the most my opinion, magnificent buildings ever created. When it opened in 2010, it boasted uh, an expense of $8 billion as the largest casino in the world, the most expensive casino in the world with 2,500 hotel rooms. And what makes the Marina Bay Sands Hotel so unique as you look at it, it's these three pillars, these three arches with a a boat on top, something like a cruise boat, suspended high up in the air, 650 feet high. This sky park, as it might be called, spans 1,200 feet long, has an infinity pool at the very top. That's 500 feet. It can fit over 4,000 people in this boat. Take this room, multiply it maybe by four times. It's incredible. 
And having been there myself, I can say it is one of the most magnificent, amazing things that I have ever seen. And nowhere else in the world will you find an attraction like the Marina Bay Sands. It's iconic. And the world knows Singapore through this structure, through this hotel. It testifies to their engineering expertise. It speaks to their national economic superiority and self-sufficiency. It declares them as creative masterminds, a global powerhouse. And in one sense, it's a symbol of their identity. And for being a nation that's only 55 years old, Singapore has distinguished themselves from the rest of the world, much in part due to Marina Bay Sands. And that's the point this morning. You know the people when you see the place. It makes the city and the people in it famous. And you could say this about other wonders of the world. And so thank you, for Singaporean, for allowing me to use this and to use you as an example. But that's exactly what we see here in the Tower of Babel. And I think even a hundred times greater The people of Babel are out to make a name for themselves, to even elevate their name above God's. This story reveals the sinful, depraved heart of man, but it also highlights the amazing kindness of God. See, Genesis 11, 1 through 9, as short as it is, it connects the the previous 10 chapters of the Bible, and it sets up everything else we need to understand the rest of the Bible as well in terms of nations. In doing so, this story tells of the name that is greater than Babel. There is a name that goes, in a sense, beyond Babel. There is a name above all other names. And no matter how hard a people seek to make a name for themselves, God's name is infinitely greater, and his plan will always prevail in the end. And that's what we see what we'll see here today. Perhaps if you're joining us here for the very first time, maybe this is your introduction to Christianity. And I pray that you'll walk away uh, with a high view of God. And I'll even invite you to commit your life to God this morning. Or maybe you've been a believer for, for many years and you've been coming to Grace here. Maybe you grew up here at Grace. And I pray for you as well, that as we look at Genesis chapter 11, that you'll walk away reminded of your sin, but you'll also be reinvigorated in your understanding of God's kindness and his patience. And it'll even spur you on to help fulfill his grand plan. So to help us with our study today, I've outlined our passage under the following two headings. Really, really simple today. We're going to look at man, and then we're going to look at God. The first four verses look at what man is doing and his motivations. And then we're going to look at God. What is God doing in this story? And what is his heart for why he does what he does? So let's dive in and look first at man. And some background here to the the story. We're going to look briefly in the previous chapters in Genesis. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here because if you're here last evening service, uh, Dr. Abner Chow went through really quickly and much more effectively uh, through Genesis 1 through chapter 11. We're honing in on specifically chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel. So I want to give you a brief background of man. Genesis chapter 1, what do we know? Man was created, right? Man is created. Creation was created. 
All things were created by God, and then man was created. Genesis chapter 3, what do we see happened with man? Man sins. Man is tempted and falls. Introduction of sin. Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills Abel. Murder is introduced. Genesis 5 through 9, there's so much wickedness on this earth that God does what? He wipes out the earth with the flood. And then in Genesis chapter 10, we get what we call what is called the table of nations. From Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth, we see how the nations of the world developed. And in chapter 10, we read several times that the nations and languages have already developed. For example, look at verse 5, if you're there in chapter 10. It says this, From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. Verse 20, these are the sons of Ham, by their clans, in their languages, their lands, and their nations. 31, these are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, their nations. And then we come to chapter 11, verse 1, reads, Now the whole earth had one language in the same words. So what just happened here? I thought there were multiple languages, already multiple nations. What's going on here in chapter 11 where it says now there's only one language? Well, when you read the Old Testament, when you read, read Hebrew narrative, um, things aren't always chronological. They're not always in order in the way we would think from, um, in chronological order. Indeed, it's a typical Hebrew narrative tool that we often read a summary of the passage first, and then we zoom in to a specific story. We saw this in Genesis chapter 1 through 2, when creation, and then man in chapter, chapter 2, um, is described in more detail. There are more instances, instances like this. And in this case, in chapter 10, there are multiple languages of the world. And then immediately in chapter 11, we hone into how it all happened. And it begs the question then, how do we get from one language spoken to the many? And then we also have to ask the question, why is the story so significant that Moses would spend these verses to go into detail? So after realizing what is happening here, we refocus our lens now back on man and ask some basic questions. What is man doing here? Let's do some fact-finding. All right, we're going to do a Bible study here today. First of all, we see that all of mankind is speaking the same words. And to reiterate what is already clear here in this text, one language equals one common language. The same words here would be conventional vocabulary. And all this means is that they understood one another. See, just because you speak English doesn't mean you always understand the person you're speaking with. If you go to New York, for example, you might have to ask them to repeat what they're saying. If you go to Britain, you're going to have to ask them to repeat what they're saying. Or they might use words that are different than the words we would use here. Example, I have a friend who is actually from Britain. He's a seminary student here. And uh, one day I was hanging out with him. He said, I got to go take care of my kid and his nappy. I said, okay, go ahead and take care of your kid and, and his nappy. I don't know what nappy is. I would just assume he's got to go wake up his kid or he's got to put his kid down for a nap. And he comes back with a huge diaper in his hand. And I said, is that what nap? Got it. Nappy means his diaper. We speak the same language, but 
we use different vocabulary. Here in Genesis 11, it says that everyone not only spoke the same language, but they also had the same vocabulary. So what do we learn about man in verse 1? They speak the same language, same vocabulary, in such a way that they understand one another. And when everyone understands each other, everyone is able to work together, collaborate together, unify together around a common goal, whether good or bad. And this may not seem super significant here at first, but as we continue to gather additional details in our study here, we're going to learn and see what man is doing. And I think the reason why this is so important will become clear. So let's do some more fact-finding. What else do we see man doing here? Look at verse 2. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They settled Shinar from the east. Now, Shinar, I want to point out that it's likely that Shinar wasn't actually too far from the Garden of Eden, where it all began. If you carefully follow the narrative of Genesis, you'll see that this is actually pretty troublesome. Why? See, God had a specific command for mankind, right? All the way in the very, very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis chapter 8, chapter 9. Verse 7, here's another example. These are several examples. I'll I'll just mention verse 7 in chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Why was God telling man to spread and to go? Because in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, he also says this. Let us make man. God is saying let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and after man was created in the image of god he was commanded to go and spread that very image he didn't choose the giraffes he didn't choose the doves he chose man and this was god's plan for his glory to make man in his image and to send man throughout the world to bear witness about god the spreading of god God's people is part of his plan. It always has been the outworking of his blessing given to his people. Spreading, spreading. And then here we see chapter 11, they settled. They settled. They settled in Shinar, perhaps a place not too far from where it all began. So what on earth is man doing? More fact-finding. Verse 2 also says that the people settled from the east. And now the east, it's actually, again, if we do some reading in Genesis, it's a bad omen. It's a foreshadow, if you will, that what is going to happen next is not going to be good. So bear with me. I know we're going back into Genesis quite a bit, but it's important. Context is important, right? Repeated words and themes are important. So feel free just to write these these references down. You can always come back to them later. But in chapter 3, verse 24, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden. And the angels were set to guard the garden. Where? On the east. And Adam and Eve were sent eastward. Chapter 4, verse 16, Cain goes 
east after killing his brother. In chapter 13, verse 11, we see when Abraham and Lot separate. Abraham says, which direction do you want to go? Lot chooses the eastward direction. And very quickly, Lot faces trouble, and Abraham has to come and rescue him. When you see east in Genesis, it's not a good sign. And so we've learned that man is speaking one language. He's settled. He's going east. And now in and of these actions themselves, they're not sinful. Speaking the same language, settling, it's not sinful. But using the context of the story and these certain indicators, we start to gather that What's happening here is not good. And it hints about the sinful heart of man behind these actions. Next we see man constructing a city tower. Verse 3, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Look at what man says. Come, let us make. Let us make. Now building is not wrong. We're supposed to go and subdue the earth. That's what God has commanded. But in Genesis chapter 1, God says this, man is not, um, come let us, right? Let us. And so the reference here is very, very, very similar to what God has said. Man is using the language of God. God. Man is using the language that is meant for God, not for man. So what is going on here? Man is claiming, in a sense, to be God. More fact-finding. What are the materials used? We have brick for stone, bitumen for mortar. Bitumen was this kind of slimy, sludgy kind of liquid that was used to hold bricks together. And some commentators give some insight for what the author is trying to convey here with, with brick for stone. One commentator notes that the people of Babylon are using inferior supplies, such as brick for stone may have been a much better choice. And so by mentioning that they were using inferior supplies, Moses is potentially mocking them, the city builders, mocking them. But another commentator remarks that using brick and bitumen, potentially inferior products, actually gave the kings the ability to to impress, to engrave their name or their stamp onto each of the bricks, creating a a long-lasting memory of those who built it, especially the king. But regardless of mocking or imprinting the king's name, whatever the intended reason was for contrasting these these materials, the use of brick for stone and bitumen for mortar was not shedding a positive light or projecting a good posture toward this building to the listener of the story. Indeed, these contrasts are meant to continue to paint this scenario in a negative light. Verse 4 also says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city tower. Come, let us build ourselves. Once again, we have here man declaring their ability to create in the same way that God did. But it specifies a city tower. And now it's possible that this was a a city with a tower, or there may have been a whole city as one tower. Um, But we can see that there's a lot of benefits here. Having a fortified city meant that they would have security. Uh, being sed- sedentary instead of nomadic had its military advantages. The city could fortify its walls. One could create taller towers and see into the distance as threats were coming their way. Or maybe economically, by settling down, you could actually create crops and specialize um, and develop trade. But when you think about a, a civilized city and an economy today, what do you see? 
you see a group of like-minded people. Maybe different skill sets, different abilities, but people with a common goal. People with their mindset on advancing the city. Set forth for the goal and the benefit of everyone in that city. Indeed, a city and a tower are gifts from God, right? It's men subduing the earth. But when the motivation and end goal of such monumental achievement is for self-worship and fame, that's where man has taken something meant for good and has turned it into something for evil. Man here isn't building for God. The text says, let us build for ourselves. And so that leads us now to the motivation of these men in this passage at Shinar. We saw what the men are doing. Let's look at their motivation. We already saw it in the phrase, come let us build ourselves. But now it's stated a bit more explicitly in verse 4. And I see three sinful motivations that I want to point out to you here in the text. First, they are attempting to be like God. Verse 4 says, with its peak in the heavens, right? They're building a tower with its peak up into the sky, into the heavens. And here the tower is a sort of architectural symbol of man's self-projected greatness. With its top in the heavens is an idiom for status of the deities. It's meant to shout significance and potentially a sign of great security. And so at the heart of it, it's an attempt to be like God to construct self-projected security, prosperity, and greatness and self-declared destiny. Secondly, they're motivated to make a name for themselves. They wanted to project their name over God's. Remember, God has been seeking a people who would honor his name. But here in 11.4, it says, let us build ourselves and let us make a name for ourselves. By constructing a large tower, they are attempting to make oneself immortal, famous, transcendent, even. Think of some of the largest structures in the world besides the Marina Bay Sands. Think of like the Taj Mahal or the Egyptian pyramids. These were built to bury their creators. It's a grave for the king or the leader of the day so that their names will last far beyond their generation. Same thing here for Babel. Third, they were adamant in their disobedience to God's plan, lest we be dispersed. The people of of Babel knew exactly what they were supposed to do and where they were supposed to go. They knew that settling was in direct objection and defiance to what God had told them to do. Their heart was for themselves, not for the will and the commandments of God. So I want to take a moment here and take a pause and ask you, even though you're not tower builders, crossroaders, I think these motivations can resonate with each of us, with each of you. And so we must ask these questions of ourselves then. In what ways are you attempting to be like God even in your own life? In what ways are you attempting to make your name great? In what ways are you being disobedient to God? Austin was so so helpful this morning in Psalm 57. He, He said, what consumes your mind? 
What, what is at the center of what you are attempting to do? Is that, is that yourself or is it the Lord? Or maybe another way of thinking about this is this. Are you one who boasts about yourself? About your accomplishments? About getting this job or this promotion or getting into this grad school? Or like we see in the book of James, do you project forward and, and boast about what your plans are for tomorrow because of what you've accomplished today to make this amount of money or to get this type of car or to buy a home or to be married in two years from now or to make it big and retire when you're 40? James warns that all such boasting is evil. Make plans, yes. Be good stewards, absolutely. But don't go around living your lives in ways that you pretend to be God. You don't control your life. And you don't know if and when cancer might come knocking on your family's door. And you don't know whether or not your children are going to be saved. You can't control whether or not you're going to be hit by a car on your way home today. So what can you do? You can study his word and be faithful to him in all things. Friends, would you examine your lives today and see if you're attempting to be like God? If so, put those ambitions to death. Instead, remember that you have been commissioned to be on this earth, to subdue it, to spread throughout the earth, and to bear the image of God by being like his son, Jesus Christ. Instead of trying to make a name for yourself, Embrace the name that God has given to you, children of God, ambassadors for Christ, citizens of heaven. This, Crossroaders, is far greater. As Christians, we've been saved from our sin, redeemed by the blood of Christ, who lived a perfect life and died a death that you and I deserve. For those who trust in him as our risen Lord for the forgiveness of sins, we can rejoice that we have been given these names and his divine purpose. But if you don't know Christ today, I pray that you would consider coming to him and trusting him this very hour. We don't need to be God. God is God. And for those in Christ, we have been given all the heavenly riches of God in Christ. And God has given us a name. We are his children. And God has given us a grand plan that is far greater than any that we can come up with. So we've seen man here in this passage this morning. We've seen what he's doing. We've seen his motivations. And I want to look now at God What is God doing in this passage? And what is his heart? What is his motivation? Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And that's the first action we see from God. He comes down. God comes down. And apparently the tower was still not very high. The fact that the Lord had to come down to even see it meant that they were still way off. A little bit of irony. But here we have the focal point of the story. See, up to now, sin has been building, has been building, has been building. And then God comes down to put an end to it. 
This is where God steps in and stops sin. Same with Adam and Eve. When God arrives, he points out the sin and stops what's happening. Same with Cain. Same in Genesis chapter 6 with the wickedness of the earth. All the earth was wicked, and God sends the flood to stop it. Genesis is full of stories with mounting evil. In fact, the whole Bible is. And then God comes in time in, time again, to stop it. Same here in Genesis chapter 11. Verse 6 even continues this. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. While verse 5 shows the irony of the situation of God coming down, the second part of this story here, or this verse, shows that God isn't really laughing about their puny effort at all. He actually takes it very, very seriously. Look at how it's described. Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Verse 6. Remember, there's, they're one people. They're one language. And the sin on display here is only the beginning of what might happen. We see sin progressing through the book of Genesis. Sin against God, and then sin against husband and wife, and sin against a brother, sin against one's parents. And now we have the sin of a nation against God, the sin of a people rebelling against God. God is stating that should man continue on this path, nothing will be impossible for them in terms of their sinfulness. Romans 1 illustrates this perfectly. The downward spiral of man's sin just continues and continues. But thanks be to God for his sovereignty over sin. Amen? God is in full control. God comes down and says, enough. He puts on display his grace and his mercy and prevents them from sinning further. Stop and think for a moment. Isn't that amazing? Maybe you can ask yourself this way. When was the last time you were caught in sin? And praise the Lord that you got caught. At work, School, relationship, simple lie. Maybe it's an addiction of some kind. You just keep going and keep going and going. And unless someone catches you, finds out, you're just getting deeper and deeper into that sin. And while it may be emotionally and even physically heart-wrenching, painful to come out of that sin when you're caught, you know deep down inside that getting caught was actually for your own good. It's grace in and of itself because that person or that incident will help you get back on your feet, help you to stop that sin. See, left to ourselves, who can imagine how deep we would be in our sins? Hebrews 12 talks about the blessing of discipline from the God for his people. And we as believers ought to be thankful for this kind of discipline from our Father. Here in the loving kindness of God, he comes down and he prevents man from being able to drive deeper into their sin. In the outcome of the flood, God promises to never wipe out his people again. So we ask then, how, God, are you going to stop the people 
of Babel. What does God do? Let's keep looking. Verse 7 comes, comes down. Come, let us go down and confuse their language. Second thing we see God doing here, he's going to confuse their language so that they may not be able to understand one another's speech. But notice, come, let us, Moses recaptures the power and the authority of God as the one who is introduced in Genesis. Let us, the Godhead, come down there to confuse their language. What was once used to unify man's efforts, namely their language, will now cause them to separate. In verse 8, so the Lord then disperses them from over the face of the earth and left off building the city. The third thing we see God doing here, here is he causes them to scatter. He disperses them. And just as we see in early chapters of Genesis, God making judgment for man's sin, we also now see here God showing his divine mercy. Verse 9, therefore its name was called Babel. And so ironically, the people of Shinar get a name for themselves but one that is not to be praised. Babel means confusion. And we know that Babel is the wicked Babylon throughout the rest of Scripture, which will be destroyed in the last days, as seen in Revelation. Therefore, its name was called Babel, verse 9, because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The Lord comes down, The Lord confused their languages. The Lord causes them to scatter. So why does God do this? What's his motivation and what's his heart? Two things. One, God is jealous for his glory. And he will not allow the success of others who seek glory over the Lord. Man proposed to make a great name for themselves. And God says that it couldn't could have happened, but God won't allow that to happen. Secondly, by stepping in and confusing their languages, in God's kindness, he desires to save them from their own sin, to save them from their own destruction, to save a people who he will choose to one day bring great glory to his own name. This is the heart of God we so often see throughout scripture, God's passion for his glory. God's patience toward his people. I think Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11, captures this well, captures the heart of God well here. He says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Why is this story then so significant for us today? And why is it important to understand in the grand scheme of the entire Bible? I'll give you a couple of reasons. Number one, it just illustrates the sinfulness of man the perpetual sinfulness of man, the continued sinfulness of man. And brothers and sisters, we are that man. May we heed it as a warning for ourselves. Number two, it illustrates God's judgment, but also his graciousness. 
See, without God stepping into our lives, we would be eternally damned in our sin. And perhaps God is stepping in your life today, whether it be through the preaching of the word here today or through another brother or sister who is pointing out the sin in your life and calling you to repentance. Third, this story illustrates that God will not give his glory to another, and he'll do whatever it takes. Fourth, it shows that God alone is the one to give his people a great name. But it is given in his timing and in his way. God withholds a great name for the people at Shinar. But in contrast, as we read on, as you hear tonight, starting in chapter 12 of Genesis, God gives Abraham a promise that his name will be great. Chapter 12, verse 1, you can see it. Now the Lord said to Abraham, to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God will determine how significant your name will be. And in Abraham's case, great. And I think you could see these first four points in this immediate text here. But I'd like to draw your special attention to one more. Number five, God uses the immense diversity of language and culture to bring even greater glory to his name. How? See, because of man's evil desire to make a name for himself, God scatters them with different languages, resulting in different cultures, into different parts of the world. God then commissions his chosen people, Israel, and later the church to be a beacon of light, right? And to bring the gospel message message to all the nations of the world. Despite all the languages at Babel, the word of God is the singular means of salvation. Romans 1.16 says this, says that the gospel is the power for salvation. And Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of the word, says in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, take that message and make disciples of all nations. The gospel of Christ is the message of salvation for people from all languages and tribes and nations. It bears upon the souls of the earth and is authoritative and sufficient for all life and godliness. It doesn't matter if the person speaks Swahili or Bahasa or lives in Afghanistan or in Australia. God's word is sufficient to save. And if that's not enough, while God dispersed mankind once At Babel, God will bring all of his followers together once again in the end days. Man sought to make a name for himself, and God graciously changed their languages and dispersed them across all the earth. But in Zephaniah and throughout the Bible, it says things like this. Zephaniah 3.9 says, Yea, at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. We see a foretaste of this at Pentecost even, when the apostles are able to speak 
one language. God, in his graciousness, shows us a glimpse of how language will not prevent the gospel from going forth. See, what God did with language at Babel, God will restore in the last days. We see this in Acts 1.8, when, when we're commanded to go from Judea and to Samaria, Samaria and to the rest of the world. And this is where we are today, Crossroads. We stand there with the great commission given to us. You are part of this great commission to bring the gospel to all nations and to all of the world. And while you may think you need to sell all your things and to go and to go live somewhere in a tribe across the world, I would challenge you with this. TMU Wow Week. We do it every year. We have the international stand-up. And probably for an hour, we get to introduce them. The nations are here at Grace Community Church. And the nations are here in Los Angeles. Probably, arguably, the most diverse city in the entire world. And with the nations, uh, they have come here. And with that, the gospel opportunities to reach the internationals abound. People come here are in your classes. They're in your workplace. They're here for two or three years. Their places for that are restricted to the gospel, and then they go home. So you have the opportunity to evangelize to those people, to share God's word with them, to train them up with the word so that they can go back and reach the nations. Our church is, has nearly 100 missionaries, ethnic Bible studies. You can be praying for them. You can be encouraging them. You don't have to go to reach the nations. Crossroads, let us not be distracted with building a name for ourselves on this earth. Instead, let us build the truth, let us bring the truth of Jesus Christ to the nations, that they may be part of the earthly institution that God has promised to build, that is, his church. Let us not be distracted with building a name for ourselves on this earth. Instead, let us bring the gospel of Jesus to all people that they may be with us in that place that God God has gone forward to build. That is heaven, where Jesus Christ will reign and his great name will be worshiped forever. In Philippians 2, 9, verse uh, 2, 9 through 11, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Oh, Lord, we pray to that end. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. In John's vision in Revelation 7, he sees every tribe of the sons of Israel sealed. And then he sees this. After this, I looked, he says, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Crossroads, this is where we are headed. This is where God is taking his church. This is what we have to look forward to. And Crossroads, may you be, each of you be obedient today to obey God's word. And may each of you be found faithful in your part of the great commission for all the nations to glorify the name of the Lord on that last day.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time you've given us in your word today. And the reminder that you will not give your glory to another. And despite our sin against you, thank you, Lord, for forgiving us through your son and for your kindness and patience toward us. I pray, Lord, that as we leave this place today, may may we be found faithful. May we be found obedient to your word and faithful to live out the great commission to bring the gospel to all the nations of the world. Do a work in our hearts today, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.